Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. What's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Pelizzolo here with Sam Monson. We're talking all things Championship Week plus my mock draft, Sam. We get to tear that thing apart Sweet. sometime on the show. Talk a little bit of draft. But first, you guys know all first-time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight to put at least $20 into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's $40 of value for just 20 bucks, and you get the opportunity to turn that 20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at one of the fastest-growing fantasy sports sites in the country, it's Monkey Knife Fight. So go to Monkey Knife Fight, deposit your 20 bucks, use the promo code PFF, and receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription today. So that's very timely because there's an NFL draft guide out there. We also have yet another promo code to use. We'll drop that in just a little bit as we talk about the draft. So let's start with championship week. We've got the Bucks hosting the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. Packers, Bucks, first game yesterday. Let's go, man. What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah. Tom Brady gets to another Super Bowl. Super Bowl Ain't 10. no thing. Ain't no thing for Brady. Just rolls in again. For, so two weeks we're going to do the Belichick versus Brady yeah, yeah. debate and, and the whole I mean, thing. this is how we were keeping track of that throughout the season. You know, there was a little nip and tuck here and there, but now it's just Brady in a landslide again. It's just funny because we always joke about don't overreact to week one. And in week one, Belichick. Uh, Brady loses to the Saints, Belichick, you know, new offense with Cam Newton, and they're 1-0, and everybody's like, well, there you go, 1-0, 0-1. There was a few weeks, like a few weeks into the season, um, I don't want to pick on Kevin Clark, friend of the show, but he wrote, like, the league is negligent for having allowed Bill Belichick to steal Cam Newton for that kind of price, right? Yeah. And then, you know, X number of weeks later, it's like, Cam Newton sucks, the Patriots suck, everything's broken blow it up and oh by the way tom brady might be rolling into a super bowl in tampa 
we had some Patriots talk on the PFF NFL Daily because there's other news going on. So we'll get into the games in a second. There's other news going on around the league, including Matthew Stafford, Lions quarterback, going to be out there on the open market. That was announced, what, like Saturday. Um, so that's, that's the PFF NFL Daily today. So if you are a Patriots fan, Colts fan, Broncos fan, go listen to the Daily because we do break it down for you know potential suitors for Matthew Stafford and you know figuring out where he's actually going to become an upgrade. So as far as this game goes, first off, my Kevin King prediction. Yeah. I think that worked. It did. Um, and honestly, so I was watching this game and you think, poor Aaron Rodgers, right? Rodgers comes out of this game, has another phenomenal performance, made some absolutely beautiful throws. Um, and I think ultimately Rodgers played well enough to win the game. And if it was just Rodgers, yeah, of course. they would be in the Super Bowl. And I was trying to sort of think, well, what is the difference between how come when Rodgers plays like that, they don't win, and he's made it to one Super Bowl in his entire career, but when Brady plays like that, it's easy, they win, Brady goes to another Super Bowl and just keeps on trucking. And I think part of it is is also the reason why when you look at the Green Bay offense throughout the season and you're like, it's too easy for them sometimes, but it, it seems to hit these walls or stumbles or never quite... There's never this, this permanent like hammering and they keep going. I think part of it is, I don't know that he targets a weakness the same way that Rogers. Brady does. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I think that Brady is extremely good at and some of these other quarterbacks is when they find the weak link in your team, they're going to keep hitting it until you figure out how to stop that. And Kevin King in this game was the weak link. And he just got lit up from almost the very first play. Like He gave up the touchdown to Mike Evans at the beginning. He gave up the deep bomb to Scotty Miller just before the half. He gave up some other plays in, as well. The key uh, pass interference late in the game was Kevin King. <laughs> like, and he actually had a couple of good plays in there as well. Like, right. He uh, made a really nice play on a, a quick screen or something to Godwin, tackle for a loss. He made a couple of good plays, but he was just lit up over the course of this game. And I don't know that if Rodgers had found a weakness on Tampa Bay's defense, if he'd have kept hammering that guy the same way. Whereas Brady and this offense, like if, you, if you're going to keep putting Kevin King out there one-on-one -on -one with guys, he's going to keep throwing the ball in his direction and reaping the rewards. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's a really good point. And then you come down to, okay, there's going to be much debate at the end of the game, third and eight, two things where Aaron Rodgers may have had a chance to scramble for the touchdown. It looked like it was wide open. Even the end zone replay looked like, man, he had an open shot at the end zone. I really thought Rodgers was going to use his legs a lot more because the Bucs were doing a lot of – they were playing a lot of man. They were trying to press and, you know, uh, affect the Packers receivers. And even if, even if they were playing zone, they were so worried about the passing attack. If Rodgers stepped through the pocket, I thought he had a few more opportunities to run. So he, he turns down the opportunity to run, throws it back across his body – on third and eight but I think at home we're all thinking okay it's fourth and eight for the game season on the line and the Packers kicked the field goal and it you know by our numbers only about a three percent difference in win probability because you're just it's a long shot at that point you need a touchdown and a two-point conversion but the decision to kick the field goal one of the more curious ones I'd say yeah which Rogers made a point of saying that wasn't his call uh, when he was asked about it in the press conference after which is true it's not his job yeah. To make that call. I mean, yeah, he's presumably got some kind of influence on the decision, but sure, it wasn't his call. Honestly, I don't think that made a ton of difference, that decision to kick or go. We've, you know, talked before about 
the margins involved in some of these calls. Sure, I, generally speaking, in a close decision, I would want the ball in the hands of Aaron Rodgers more than I would want the ball in the hands of my defense or any other element of the roster. But I don't think this was like this wasn't the Mike Vrabel one from a few weeks ago where it's like, oh my God, how did you kick that ball? The, it, this wasn't a, a massive thing. I think you're right that the bigger part of that sequence was like, why did Rodgers throw the ball? He took off into open space. The two guys closest to stopping him were Ndamukong Sue chasing him down from behind and Jason Pierre-Paul coming from the side. Rodgers can probably outrun both those guys, at which point you've got quite a lot of open space in front of you, everybody having to at least, you know, cover guys on the goal line for a while. You've definitely got a good shot of scoring at that point. Yeah, I, man, that was – I think that well, was That the, would have made it really interesting. Yes, and then they got another two-point conversion opportunity, yeah. which they had a drop in the end zone on the previous play. But I think, you know, your question about how does, you know, one quarterback always seem to win and win 33 or whatever playoff games versus Rodgers now one and four in NFC championship games. It's not, again, quarterback record. There's, there's many things that go into it, but you point back to a handful of plays during the game. I mean, the previous, um, there was a play earlier in the sequence. He's got Sue. He's kind of fighting him off. May have had an opportunity to put the ball on his receiver in the end zone and just misses him. Yeah, it was a tough throw, mm -hmm. but he kind of stepped it. It's a couple plays here and there that they ended up leaving on the table if you're the Packers. We talked about this on the daily after the Saints loss, but does this start to damage Aaron Rodgers' legacy? That he said, now one and four in NFC Championship games. This, to his, to, in his defense, was the first one he's hosted in yeah. his career. So this is the first one he's actually got at home. And as much as they had some fans there, like what was it like ten thousand? It wasn't you know it wasn't a real home field advantage compared with what it would be normally right. in a given year. But this was like the first championship game that Rogers has hosted and still wasn't a full sort of home field advantage. But now you get this guy who's had three of the greatest seasons of the last since he came into the league. He's had three of the greatest seasons we've ever seen, but has one ring and has only got to the Super Bowl once while Brady <laughs> racks up 10 of them. I, I, don't, I do think it damages the legacy a little bit, but not because it's not because people are going to look back and say, well, on January 24th, 2021, Rodgers played a poor game and couldn't make it to the Super Bowl. I mean, it damages the legacy because people point to record first, and well, he's one in four in yeah. championship games. So yeah, that'll probably hurt a little bit. But again, you know, he played well. He, he, he played well overall, but the timing of things... So, you know, Brady played great in the first half. All of a sudden, <laughs> interceptions galore in the second half. So the, the Bucks did a poor job of actually trying to, uh, of you know, running away with it. You know, they were up 28 to 10, and they just could not pull away from the Packers. But Rodgers also had the interception at the end of the half that put together that whole sequence where the Bucks ended up, you know, scoring late, which we'll talk about in a minute as well. But I think all that stuff adds up to the whole, like, yeah, it's a, it's a few plays you're going to, point back to and say okay Rodgers could have been better on these few plays but overall to your point he played absolutely played well enough to win um, there was it was a point in this game too where it's like both quarterbacks just making ridiculous plays yeah. third down uh, if you not that you take away the turn take out the turnovers but halfway three quarters of the way through the game it was like a legit throw for throw shootout Brady versus Rodgers and then you know a few mistakes mixed in there yeah and, and it felt like Rodgers was getting the better of that one-on-one -on -one matchup Brady was putting the ball in harm's way more than Rodgers was which is obviously not only um a facet of both the different offenses like 
Tom Brady's is more aggressive, more gung-ho, more gunslinger-y, but also throughout their careers. Like Aaron Rodgers has been the more risk-averse of the two quarterbacks. Brady's occasionally put the ball in harm's way a lot more than Rodgers has. So that kind of made sense. And then the, Brady was just getting the bounce of the ball on some of those. Like the first heave in the general direction of Godwin, Godwin goes up, takes the ball away from the safety. Like almost Brady was getting away with more. Yeah, I mean there was man, it was weird some of the some of the plays. When you when you're the Bucks again, you get it's the Bruce Arians system, right? The first third and short all week I was like, man, they they gotta have some better answers here. Can you run a five you know, run a five yard route on third and three? You know, that's that's where you should attack. Brady goes over the top to Evans on the on the very first one. They did not change at all. Third and shorts, and they are still chucking it deep and, and trying to make big plays and you know, Brady ends up with probably with about five big time throws, couple turnover worthy in there as well. But it was the big time throws that were essentially the difference. The field flipper, Sam, the ones that, you know, were you creating those huge chunk plays, that was also part of the difference. So even though there was some volatility, I think, to Brady's game yesterday, it's when you're picking up thirty and forty yards in chunks and making those big plays, that's what's leading to putting points on the board. Even though the Bucs didn't do a great job of, um, you know, after they got to 28, they, they stalled out a little bit. Um, and it was a big game from Chris Godwin, who had been letting them down <laughs> from the pl- for the playoffs so far. It's a, this is a great reason why you don't get – you don't overreact to drops, right? Drops are, are drop not good. Drop the slant first, yeah. but even before the big jump off. Right, but also the, the two pr- playoff games before this. Like, Godwin had been dropping everything coming in his direction. You're like, at some point – Chris Godwin is going to stop dropping the football. Right. He, he had, I think, was it six drops coming into this game, um, which is more than he'd had in, like, full seasons before that. Uh, maybe you're like, that's that can't continue. Chris Godwin is too good. It's five for, against the football team. For that to be a problem throughout the entire playoffs, then you're right, had a drop, and then Chris Godwin shows up, like the real one. Um, and when that happens, you have a phenomenal weapon. Like, that, that covers over the fact that you don't have an Antonio Brown out there um, and finally happened. Like, they had been waiting for Chris Godwin to arrive, and here it was in the NFC Championship game. And I think that goes back to the Bucks and their weapons, man. I, I just think that the, fa- the fact that they have all these different solutions to what you throw at them, and Scotty Miller always seems to get that one deep ball, right? But this, is, this has been the story of the Bucks. Cameron Brait was their top target coming in, you know, as far as the, the playoffs go. Uh, Rob Gronkowski pretty much just what wasn't needed other than what a, a 29 yard screen pass but Godwin's the guy who goes for over 100 yards Mike Evans was the guy early on that they were finding you know Scotty Miller has the 39 yard touchdown before the half and that's where I want to go because this was especially when you look back like this was the absolute turning point in the game right so this was third and three and I, I had mentioned I gotta apologize to Bruce Arians here I thought yeah. I joked the last couple weeks oh Bruce is gonna He's going to throw a red flag when he shouldn't, and he's going to be too conservative. And, yeah, they were doing a lot of the early down running again this in this game. But the biggest decision of the game is Bruce Arians on fourth and three late in the first half decides to go for it. And Brady was shocked, too. Brady was on the sideline with his jacket on. <laughs> yeah, they, they were like, the Tom, offense was, had come, come ashore. Tom, get out there. We're going to go for it on fourth down. He was shocked as well. And the risk here was what there was like 13 seconds left, whatever it was. And if you don't get it, Rodgers is a – a seam route away from being in in field goal range but the bucks were aggressive there they said we're going to put points on the board and it seemed like 
okay, they convert fourth and four, it was. They convert fourth and four, and then it's like, okay, now you've got a chance for a field goal. You have a chance to get out of the half and steal three points. You go quick out, get to the sideline. You had eight seconds. They had eight seconds left. And of course, Sam, everybody had flashbacks to the 1998 Jaguars. Of course. Mark Brunel to mm. Jimmy Smith against. You're like the only human being. It didn't even occur to Jimmy Smith watching this game. No, he remembers. No, not at all. He You're remembers. the only human being in the world. I had a tweet fired who up. Made I, had that that, connection. I had that play tweeted out a couple yeah. of years ago. Like watching this, Jimmy Smith stumble across your timeline. It's like, oh, yeah, that is kind of like what happened to us back in, what was it, 97? 1998. I mean, technically it happened in 1999. By the way, I, I got to get something off my chest. Oh, God. When we use year, yeah. I think by default you go to the NFL season. Yes. Right? So, like, this year's Super Bowl is the 2020 Super Bowl. Yes. Right? So, if I go back and I say Tom Brady has played in the Super Bowl in the 2014, 16, 18, It 20, is awkward the way those seasons roll yes. over into the next year. Now, the NBA you go with the second season because they split the year. Most soccer, of the year happens in the second soccer season. Soccer is even more awkward. They they call both of them. So it's the 2020-2021 season. Yeah, the NBA does like, that a little bit. But if you're going to pick a number, you, you're, yeah, a year, you go with the That's the just one. obnoxious. We're in the 2021 NBA season. It's the 2020 NFL season. Yeah. Um, so Brunel to Jimmy Smith was 1998. Okay. All I'm saying is you're the only human being in the world that made that connection. Like, anyway. Even those two guys didn't think of that when they, they were watching remember. this game. They might remember, but like they didn't make the connection between that play and what they did 20-plus years ago. Never forget that one. Anyway, Brady to Scotty Miller gets behind the defense, gets behind Kevin gets behind King. behind Kevin King, yeah. yes. Um, so I was saying this to you before we went live, right? Great, great throw and catch. Hideous play by Kevin King. On the other hand, what the hell are you doing putting Kevin King on an island in man coverage deep down the field against Scotty Miller? Kevin King is a long, tall, slow cornerback he's fast though no play slow going up against scotty miller who's like a designated deep threat and a short quick guy in a straight line you like that's a bad mismatch anyway let alone at the end of a half where like the only thing you can't give up is this and that's exactly what you exposed him to allow to give up the two points i want to make first the tampa bay defense ran the game plan that we sort of said that they they're best at running, right? They got more aggressive. They found a way of actually getting after Aaron Rodgers and causing him some problems. And the reason that this was even an option, this drive uh, that they executed just before the half, was because they got to Aaron Rodgers again, sacked him, forced the, um, got the ball back. Tom Brady then got to execute that. And then the other thing is the thing we were saying coming into the game of, look, the all the running on first down for the Bucks is generally bad it's not it's not the most efficient way of playing football on the other hand all of that air it out on third down stuff makes them uniquely well suited to mitigating that or to to taking advantage of the situations that it puts them in so they only face one third and long remember the preview podcast we ran through their third and long numbers and they're the best in the nfl at it um they only had one third and like 10 plus but on third and seven plus Tom Brady was uh, five of seven for 111 yards and a touchdown, 16 yards per attempt, right? Like yeah. this offense is uniquely qualified to take advantage of being put in those crappy situations. So sure, if you're Bruce Arians, it's not the most efficient way of running offense. On the other hand, you, it does play to your strengths. You also get a random 20-yard 
freak play by Leonard Fournette on first down as well. After Playoff Lenny. Yes, they had just gone two or three yards a pop, and Fournette just breaks it out for the 20-yard touchdown run. Which That's a great fantastic. example, by the way, of hidden negatives for a cornerback, right? You're going to look at this game, and you'll be like, Jair Alexander, great coverage guy, shuts down Mike Evans, does a phenomenal job. Jair Alexander was one of the guys that got absolutely wrecked on the, on the, on the edge, blue contained for that Lenny touchdown. That touch, so, you know, Jair Alexander's coverage numbers will not show a touchdown or will not show one touchdown, but he basically gave one up on the ground by letting Lenny get to the sideline and, and break another tackle and score. So you mentioned the Bucks and the pressure that they got. Their, their two best pass rushers, clearly Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul. So they were, uh, they combined for 12 out of 21 pressures that players on the Bucks just picked up. Not plays, but just total, because you can have multiple on one play. Mm-hmm. So 12 out of the 21 total pressures that the Bucks accumulated. David Bakhtiari not being there yeah. at left tackle, I think this was maybe the first time it actually came back to, to bite a little bit. You know, not having... Uh, probably the best pass-protecting left tackle, both tackles for the Packers, Billy Turner and Rick Wagner, both struggled a little bit. And, you know, and struggling is, you know, giving it up a couple times per game. And those ended up becoming huge plays. And I would say that is also one of the slight differences. While Aaron Rodgers threw the ball extremely well, you know, the first sack was kind of him, you know, holding the ball a little bit. He took five sacks in this game. And when you use EPA and you use, you know, actual play value, a sack ends up becoming such a negative play for the drive. So while he only had the one turnover, five sacks ended up slowing a whole bunch of drives for the Packers. Usually when you get pressure on Aaron Rodgers, he's a good enough athlete to escape it and make plays anyway. The Bucks were able to, when they got pressure with those guys, they tended to get home. Like, there were a couple of plays where, you know, Wagner was beaten around the edge and Shaq Barrett did a really good job of not just beating him, but the, the thing that Brandon Graham never does, which is why you owe me lunch. Um, oh, yeah. Dude. He gets around the corner and then keeps turning and just right. manages to, to keep turning that corner and get something on Rodgers. There were a couple of plays where he did. He won. And you're like, okay, that's pressure. And, ah, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good job of finishing that play. And, okay, you didn't necessarily get the sack, but you at least continue to like keep coming at Rodgers and, and force him to get rid of it right then and there, not just like move off his spot and still make a play. Yeah, I, those are that's it, that's gonna be the same discussion when we talk about the Bucks against Mahomes. You know, if it, you know, we we've talked a lot about how some teams are afraid to rush uh, Aaron Rodgers or yeah. Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson or guys that can break the pocket, and it's one of those like if you're gonna win. And you are going to go after them. For, like, you got to win quickly and get there. It's like the Josh Allen discussion that we'll have later. Like, it's, it's a high-risk strategy, but it might still be the best one. Like, yeah. if, if you're going to win a game like this, particularly in games where you're an underdog, if you're going to win a game like that, sometimes you have to employ the high-risk strategy because it's the one – the high-risk one is the one that tends to pay off big, right? Like, you're not going to win by playing – the the margins because the margins say that they're a better team than you and they'll win that way if you're going to overcome the fact that you're an underdog you probably need to take some bigger chances and hope that they pay off in your direction and that's where again arian's going for it on fourth and three the biggest decision of the game that and lafleur not going for it on fourth and eight the two biggest decisions in the game uh one of them paid off one of them didn't 
And the other, so that the Arians going for it on fourth and three. The Bucks go into the half. They're up twenty-one to ten. Packers come out getting the ball. So this was the other huge sequence in the game. Jordan Whitehead, who knocked himself out of the game with a huge hit, forced two fumbles on Aaron Jones in this one. One, everybody forgot about because the ball just landed along the sideline. Right. And this is again, it's like, do you remember Aaron Jones fumbling? No, you know, teammate picked it up. The second one though was huge. And Great the play. Bucks did a really nice job. You know, it's one of those plays where it looks like this wide open, shallow cross and Jordan Whitehead, they're playing it. They're keeping everything underneath and they're like, hey, you got to come up and tackle. And that is one thing the Bucks defense has done a really good job. They did a great job with the Saints, keeping the ball in front and coming up and making tackles and hitting hard because they fly to the football. Jordan Whitehead forces the fumble on Aaron Jones and the Bucks go up 28 to 10 on the next play. Um, and, and so even though the Bucks offense couldn't get anything going in the second half, they built up you know, that 18-point lead that proved insurmountable for the Packers. Yeah, Tampa Bay's defense really did show up in a big way. I, you wouldn't necessarily think it because like, if you look at the score, um, but their defense was a big difference maker compared with some previous games they've had where they haven't been that good. Um, and I think that's a testament to how well Aaron Rodgers played in this game that despite Tampa Bay making all those plays, Green Bay put up that kind of points um, total and you know had a shot at winning at the end yeah Sean Murphy Bunting had that interception I talked about he was in a tough spot man he had to try to cover Devontae Adams in the slot for much of the game you know that's that's a part of it too right it's like you could play well defensively but if you're going up against Rodgers and you know pretty good Packers receivers or Marquez Valdez Scantling you know, another guy that we said ignore the drops a little bit because he's you know around for a 50 yarder every now and again he had so, a really nice game yeah he had a real nice game um so yeah, the, the Bucks defense, it comes down to the last couple of weeks. They're forcing turnovers, making some huge plays. Again, I don't know if they'll be able to do that against the Chiefs. They're, they're going to need more of that, but uh, you got to give them credit. By the way, as much as you know, Tom Brady threw the ball up for grabs a few times in this game, if your takeaway last week was Tom Brady's wash, this was just two old men slugging it out, this was like the example. This was the uh, proof that you were just full of it and you hadn't watched Tom Brady for a decent period of time. Like Tom Brady just had a bad game last week, didn't look great. Tom Brady, other than that game, has looked really good for most of the season. This was Tom Brady looking really good for most of this game and then occasionally like throwing the ball up for grabs. Yeah, right. Like There, there, there were definitely some bad decisions in there. The, all, the other, he also had a good deep ball to Mike Evans that was dropped. Yep. seam route to Tyler Johnson that was dropped and the slant that you mentioned to Chris Godwin. So there was, there was plays that didn't show up for him as well. Four, four total drops, I think, for the Bucs. Um, again, the Bucks' offense, though, is so boomer bust, Sam. There was a point in the game where they pretty much had like four big plays and everything else was like, meh, yeah. nothing. And that's, that's, it's just, that's this offense. It's the Bruce Arian system. It feels Always. like such a low percentage play and it puts so much pressure on the quarterback and the receiver. Yeah. It puts so much pressure on them to execute play just you know I mean, the, that's the, why the huge plays I think that's why you don't see this system pay off with they don't create the dynasty they don't create a system that's like this team is going to be dominant for the next eight years they create the one one year where it comes together and you get the 2015 Carson Palmer Arizona run until Palmer wrecks his thumb and has a playoff nightmare but like that's the year right where suddenly it all comes together and you get the quarterback that just clicks and he's making all those big throws down the field, and he's not throwing the ball in harm's way. Brady was able to do that right out, out of the gate, right? Come in, 
not have the 40 turnover-worthy plays in year one, have 12 or whatever it was in the regular season, and be able to execute that to a degree where he doesn't, where he's already taking a, he's already making this a championship caliber system um, just by being himself within this. So I, I just, it is a high risk, low percentage um, offense and system, but Brady appears to be uniquely qualified to handle that in year one and make some, make the best out of it. He, it would have been fascinating to see Brady in this offense all the time a, for like for 10 a, years for a longer yeah. period of time. It helps having the playmakers, though, too. It's, yeah. it's not just the offense. It's the offense with multiple dudes to throw to. It's interesting. There's some sort of, I don't know if it's revisionist history, but, you know, I tweeted last night that <laughs> Brady's been in the NFC like a few months. Drew Brees got there in 06. Aaron Rodgers got there in 05. And Brady has the same number of NFC championships as they do. Um, and everyone's like, well, he handpicked his team, went to this loaded roster. And like, well, okay, yes, he deliberately went and picked the best option for him, which is kind of what you would expect a quarterback to do, right? Peyton Manning didn't go to Denver because he thought Denver sucked. He went to Denver because he thought they were a good spot. Supposedly only two teams were interested in Brady anyway. Whatever. Like, he went to a team that he thought had a good shot at winning a Super Bowl, and that's not a bad thing. Um, On the other hand, he went to a team where you probably weren't going to be the best team in your division, let alone the conference. Like, he went to a, a division with the New Orleans Saints in it. So, okay, yes, you hand-selected a team that had Chris Godwin and Mike Evans and O.J. Howard before he got injured. You brought Gronk along for the ride. You got Antonio Brown in off the street. Um, they drafted Tristan Wirfs. These are a bunch of things that happened after he arrived. And you deliberately, and you knew going in there that you were going to have to knock off the New Orleans Saints somewhere along the way, and that wasn't going to be easy. So I think people are starting to rewrite a little bit the way that happened it like Brady didn't go to a they went seven and nine last year this was not a team that was like this was not a juggernaut Super Bowl team just waiting for a quarterback to step in there and like lead them one one hurdle further along right there were rumors that he wanted to go to the Saints and then Breeze was like wait 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 I'm coming back yeah and now that then you might be able to make that argument a little bit the Saints the best all-around team in the NFC the last four yes. years. Yes, and right? I think the best roster in the NFC this year. Like right. The Saints, if yeah, if if he had wound up just jumping onto the Saints and leading them the extra hurdle that Drew Brees hasn't been able to get them through the last few years, I think that would be a valid argument. But when you're saying, oh, of course they're going to the Super Bowl, look at the roster he jumped onto, I think that's pretty weak. Really quick, though, just there's it's, we saw yesterday, there's far more than just the quarterback here. But if your whole if your whole shtick is to try to discredit Brady's like twenty one years of excellence, like find something new to do. There's it's not well, this, it's not tw- it's not twenty one years of luck or whatever this with is, Brady. It's ridiculous. There's a reason why they they've gotten to so many Super Bowls. And yeah, you're gonna lose some games along the way and have some bounces go your way. But you know you make your own luck as well. This is why I think there is something at stake for Brady. Like He is the greatest of all time. I think that legacy is secure, whatever happened this year. But there's still something to play for because this propels him into this different level where he can go, I left Bill Belichick and the environment in New England. I went to a different team that was 7-9 and nine the year before and was not like an obvious Super Bowl contender without me, and I took them immediately to a Super Bowl. And if you think that's easy... In the NFC, Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers have been plugging away for 15 years apiece, and they've each only done it once. Right. I, I rolled in there at 43 years old 
and did it the first time of asking. And they had to win. They had to win three road games along the way, right? To now earn a, a home Super Bowl, first yes. team to ever wild you know, card, right? The whole way, like if Dan Marino spent his entire career got to one Super Bowl and didn't win it, like it is not easy to win the volume of games that Brady and his teams have won in the postseason. And for him to keep doing that in a new environment is significant. Bottom line for Brady yesterday, though, the Scotty Miller throw at the end of the half, Mike Evans touchdown, there were some huge throws that he made in there to go along with the few interceptions. And here's why the legacy – let's get into the Chiefs-Bills. Here's why the Brady legacy thing is fascinating. Because Mahomes is coming. Because Mahomes is the guy – that you know 10 years from now we're gonna is Mahomes better than Brady and you know how people's memories are Mahomes will make two great throws and he's called the goat and you know but he, if if anybody's gonna challenge it seems like winning six Super Bowls is this ridiculous insurmountable thing if Mahomes if, if the Chiefs win this one he's if he won has, yeah if he has two at the age of 25 yeah and, and three straight AFC championship games like he's coming like this that legacy might not last as long as you think it will so this matchup is incredible well everybody's gonna be talking about it of course for two weeks it's the Super Bowl but it's also it's Brady versus Mahomes it's I, I like the I, I know you, you know Tony Romo gets on your nerves a little bit mm. but Jordan versus LeBron is a pretty Jordan good versus LeBron my buddy texted me he's a wrestling fan he said it's Ric Flair versus Shawn Michaels you've got the okay. the greatest old guy against the greatest young guy hmm. there's so many comparisons here is yeah. it flair michaels or is it jordan lebron anyway if brady's gonna hold on to this legacy at some point people are gonna start counting rings and if he's got seven and mahomes is only you know one through three years instead of six to two this is big of course it's a huge game plus yeah. the whole like hey i left i left the uh the trust tree the nest the belichick nest and, and did it on my own yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Mahomes being on the horizon as you know, a dynasty in the making is another reason that the Brady thing is is significant. You know, you need to the propelling yourself from like the greatest of all time to the greatest of all time with mythological burnishing at the end is significant because the greatest of all time thing might become under threat in the next ten years by Mahomes with his dynasty on the making dynasty whatever dynasty yeah, yeah i'm not dynasty. confused which way it is i'm like lost in the transatlantic it's not ether. dynasty okay um like mahomes if he does get a second one after three years for as impressive as it is for brady to get to 10 win six win seven um like they left a lot on the table as well oh my <laughs> they, gosh yeah. they had a bunch that they could have won and if mahomes wins the ones that were on the table like okay he's already not blown but miss an opportunity of an afc championship game but if he wins those and has just a better strike rate of the ones that were there to be taken that could very quickly close a gap between the two of them yeah i, I know that brady won super bowls with like a kick here and there like you could do this both ways but yeah. they're they're literally a handful of, pl of plays away from nine and now he's going for being a handful of plays away from 10 potentially yeah. so yes if mahomes if those few plays go mahomes way maybe it's not that crazy that Mahomes is going to get four, five, six Super Bowls. So this is going to be huge. Before we, actually, before we get to Bill's Chiefs, let's wrap it up with Aaron Rodgers and his comments after the game. It seemed, you know, I think most viewers are like, all right, we're on to the AFC. But of course, Packers fans or Packers beat writers have to cover the Packers. And it sounded like Aaron, so many people, their takeaway was that Aaron Rodgers sound like a guy that really doesn't know if he's going to be back in Green Bay next year. 
Yeah, but I think there's a different... I think you have to interpret that differently from Rodgers is on the way out automatically. Like, Rodgers, they drafted his replacement last summer or last spring, at which point there is going to be uncertainty as to his future until the point where he and Green Bay part ways. How could there not be? Like, okay, you just... Your situation is probably more secure coming off an MVP season than it was heading into the MVP season. But if you're Rodgers... You know they drafted your replacement. You don't. You haven't been told, "Hey, you have three years here, and then we're going to make a switch." All you know is I've just lost an NFC Championship game. The dude that's taking my job sometime in the future is sitting here. I honestly have no idea what the future holds. So you and think I don't it's think just player speak, like, "Hey, my job's on the line every year." That's what that's. No, football. I think he's just. I don't even think it's player speak. I think he's just lending voice to the. <laughs> to the bloody obvious like his replacement is sitting there on the bench he's not going away therefore my position here is not I don't know what it's going to be in the future I don't know if I'm out of here this year I don't know if I'm out of here next year or when this happens I don't think him speaking that into existence changes the reality of it I think they were reading the tone a little bit too I mean look the dude's frustrated the, the tone is he just lost an NFC championship yeah. game he's now one and four of course he's not like yeah, everything's going great. I'm going to come back and take another switch. Like, he's pissed off. I mean, there's no way there's no way Jordan Love, who wasn't even the backup this year, right, is the Number guy three. that Matt LaFleur is going to be like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Jordan Love time. Now, a year from now, depending on what happens, could be, could be decision time with the Packers and, uh, and Rodgers. And I think once Jordan Love was drafted, that felt like even from a contract standpoint, like Rodgers probably isn't going anywhere. <laughs> this year makes for a fun story though uh to have all the top quarterbacks in the nfc north on the move you know rogers stafford and trubisky all moving on mm-hmm. this uh this Poor offseason kirk. kirk's kirk's locked in all right let's go to the afc game 38 to 24 chiefs uh, even when they were down nine it's just the chiefs and they feel like they're in they're in control of this thing right how insane is it though that they were down nine like down nine the you know, you think back to a year ago and the number of playoff games that went in a strange way because of the thing, the bounces of the ball early. Miko um, Hardman drops the the uh, punt. Buffalo capitalizes. Now you're nine up. You're like, okay, this thing's actually bouncing Buffalo's way. But you forget that the worst possible place to put the Kansas City Chiefs is in a multiple score hole right off the get off the bat, and then Kansas City just does what they do, and it went. Oh, it was like. 9 nothing Buffalo, and then a 38-6 run for the Chiefs. And then, you know, at that point, it's game over. Forget about it. Buffalo had, had only lost the Hale-Murray game since, like, October, right? Yeah. And they, and they had been the best all-around best all around team. They looked good, all phases. Everything was great. And Kansas City just blew right by them. And, but this was another game where Kansas City offensively took everything that was there underneath, and it was – Take the sh- death by a million deep quick outs, right? I mean, it's quick out after quick out after quick out. And that is a couple years of Mahomes and Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey just instilling fear in opposing defenses. Mahomes didn't even complete a pass beyond 20 yards, but he yeah. didn't need to because the Chiefs took everything underneath. But could they still create big plays? Yes. You have a Mecole Hardman 50 yard run, the end of round. And then. Tyree Kill, it's like, oh, you know, Sean McDermott said second half, we're going we're gonna to play more aggressive. We have to come up and challenge them a little bit. Okay, Tyree Kill and press. I mean, it really is a cheat code. Like, you can't get away with just covering them one-on-one every now and again. A 71-yard slant to Tyree Kill. 
I am more in awe over what Tyreek Hill can do on a football field than any player in the NFL right now. He is uncoverable and he is terrifying in every possible scenario. There were players out there where you're like, okay, this guy is terrifying doing one specific thing. Um, but outside of that, he's normal. He's mortal. He's human, right? If I can just take away this deep play, which is not easy, this is what he's good at. But if I can just take this away, he, it's okay. Tyreek Hill can murder you in every possible capacity on the field. He can destroy you over the top with that deep speed. He can kill you on the quick stuff. We said last week, if you just ran the Cole Beasley route tree, there would never be a guy within five yards in him. He can catch a quick out and then make a dude like Tredavious White look like he's just standing there in quicksand, run right around the outside of him, start scampering down the sideline. He is terrifyingly uncoverable. There's nothing you can do. Jadavius White is Buffalo's best cover guy by a mile. And there's like a low light reel that would be a season's worth of horrendous plays by him just against Tyreek Hill just from this game. I was tweeting them out as they were happening and a bunch of them he wasn't even punished for. Like the first one absolutely destroyed off the line and only because Tyreek Hill is running back into his leverage On the deep does process. he get even close um, Tyreek Hill drops the ball. Mahomes' best throw right. of the day. Late yeah. in the game, they're just running the ball up the middle, and Tyreek Hill just, like, mocks him by a release off the line, makes him fall over. He's not even running a route. He's just, like, taking White out of the, the run play, you know, just, just running him off the line of scrimmage. And, and Tredavious White's face first in the turf trying to cover this guy. It is amazing how – and I'm not even – this isn't to hammer Tredavious White – there are plays generally where this happens and he isn't punished, and that's kind of why his PFF grade is often worse than his reputation, but that's not my point here. My point is that he is a good cover guy who Tyreek Hill may look like you or I out there, and that is terrifying. Yeah, if you were to pick the top corners who at least have a shot against Tyreek Hill, Tredavious White's probably in the top five. Yeah. I would say I think Denzel Ward has a shot like skill set wise i think um jr alexander would have been a really nice matchup i i don't know what jalen we've seen tyreek crush jalen ramsey as well when they've been one-on-one -on -one. i mean there's not too many guys i mean nobody can really cover him as to your point um, but yeah if tyreek hill was just a slot receiver he'd go off for 120 catches a year if they just wanted to use him in that way. If they just wanted to use him as an outside wide receiver, he'd average 20 per catch and just, you know, be unstoppable. I, I also think the quick out thing, this is what makes the Chiefs so dangerous, right? You have to play off on Tyreek Hill. You're afraid of him. So you take all those quick outs that are there. Tyreek has earned those. It's like a free eight to 10 yards every single time. Just like I, there was a point where like RG3 when he first came in or Lamar, where there's there's easy throws in the offense. Well, it's kind of because of their skill set. Because they 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 were RG three in year one was a good runner. But because Lamar is a good runner, he gets easy throws. Right? You've earned that. I remember Wes Wes Welker used to always have you know ten catches per game. Well, it's not just because he's not just like padding his stats. It's because he's good at catching screens and doing something with it. So he's earned ten free catches, so to speak. Tyreek has earned easy plays, easy catches because you're so afraid of him and the thing that makes the Chiefs dangerous is they're willing to take them so Mahomes has one big time throw early Tyreek drops it doesn't complete another pass beyond 20 yards but they take all the underneath stuff and it's just how do you cover Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey they did all the damage and the Bills had no answers yeah part so this game is like a, a two-part story the first one is that 
the Kansas City Chiefs stars showed up and had big games. And when that happens, they are extremely difficult to beat. Uh, Mahomes played well. Travis Kelsey was incredible. Tyreek Hill, as we just said, absolutely wrecked Tredavious White and the rest of the Buffalo defense. When that happens, the Chiefs are going to put up points and they're going to be really difficult to stop. The other side of this is that I think the Kansas City Chiefs completely outcoached Buffalo. Um, and again, this is not to rag on Buffalo. Like one of the, I, Coming into the game, I think the story was that these were two very, very similar teams. And you might give an edge to the Chiefs almost across the board, but Buffalo had the same things working for them in that they had been a very well-coached team that had schemed up well against uh, pretty much everybody, but they didn't have the answers against Kansas City, and Kansas City made adjustments and just won across the board schematically. And they were able to, to cause Josh Allen and the Bills offense all kinds of problems on defense. Spags dialed Spags. up a lot of stuff. Um, and then, as you said, on offense, they made the adjustments to take all the short stuff and to, to take advantage of the fact that Buffalo is going to invite them um, to take that by doing it and being just so efficient that it didn't matter. Yeah, so I, I like this stat right here. Targets past the sticks. And look, football's not as simple as throw the ball past the sticks a lot more often, right? It, it's, it's not that simple. Unless you're Bruce Arians. Unless you're Bruce Arians. So Mahomes only had 10 attempts. He went 7 for 10, 107 yards. What the Chiefs have done under Spags is taken the first down marker and just made it really difficult to complete passes beyond it. And I love the way they do it. Uh, we'll talk about my mock draft in a minute, but I gave them in my mock draft Elijah Molden from Washington who's another one of these like hybrid corner safety types uh, plays the slot really really well I love the way Kansas City has built that defense with guys like that with Tyron Matthew you just see him patrolling the intermediate short and intermediate middle of the field a lot uh, Juan Thornhill I, I, you know even even uh, Sorensen who's kind of like a safety linebacker hybrid right I mean it's just it's a whole bunch of hybrid players that Kansas City has turned into just on paper, they're not great, but like a reasonable pass defense. So Josh Allen was eight for eighteen on passes beyond the sticks, and I think and there was a few there in there in the fourth quarter as the Chiefs softened up a little bit. So it was just making those passes far more difficult. Two turnover-worthy plays, eight for eighteen on those plays, and I, I'm going to take out the fourth quarter in a minute here just to get a better number, but. That, has, that is what the Chiefs' defense has done over these last two years. It's also incredible how much better your personnel can look when you come with the right game plan and put them in, in positions to succeed. So one of, the thing, one of the biggest differentiators between Spags and his predecessor <laughs> is that um, Spags is uh, extremely good, I think, at game planning, right? That they, they came in or he developed the sort of Bill Belichickian um, approach to this defense. So previously, it was like we run man coverage and that's what we do. And if you are good enough to beat our fairly pedestrian uh, personnel in man coverage, we get lit up and lose the game. And that was the difference between them when Patrick Mahomes first arrived and then now is that their defense actually holds up its end of the bargain now because they're not just coming in and saying, we run man coverage. You know that. We know that. And if you can beat it, you win. They are coming in and they are game planning. And now if you're Buffalo coming into this game, you don't really know what they're going to do. And you don't know necessarily how to approach it. So they come in and they have a specific game plan 
that caused Buffalo some problems. And okay, you can look on paper and say they've got some weak links in the secondary that we can attack, but we can't dial in on them because they're sending the blitz all the time and they're sending it from the right places. So Josh Allen can't just turn around this one guy, escape into the flat and make some plays. They are like, they're penning him into the pocket with the blitz and trapping him there. And he can't just dial in on the one week link in the secondary and go after that guy. So we said, again, heading into this game, why are teams still blitzing Josh Allen? Because he's been carving up the blitz recently. And is this just a lag effect from them not working out that he's now really good? And this is why, because you can still cause him some problems with the blitz, particularly if you design them well. Um, and every now and again, you're going to get that one play where Josh Allen tries to make too much happen and takes like a 15-yard sack. Oh, man. The sacks, we'll talk about that in a second. The, uh, Allen against the blitz, 42.7 grade yesterday. And they blitzed him 19 times. Like yes, they came after him relentlessly. 10 for 19, 88 yards. Did have a, a TD in there. I don't know if that was uh, the one that was late, but 4.6 yards per attempt. I thought early on, I thought, you know, Allen looked comfortable. The Bills looked like their offense. There was a point where he just started to play a little bit slower, right? And I and I think that's I think that's where you credit Kansas City. All the points that you're making, extremely valid. There were there was a lot of plays where Allen had like the pass to the flat open early, but he just hesitated and he was like, I feel like I want to get something better. And he, it wasn't there, and then he'd throw it to the flat later there was just a lot of plays where he was a tick slow where he had played so fast for majority you know the majority of the season that was one of the biggest ways that he had improved was knowing where he was going with the ball being more decisive they did the Chiefs just a really good job of uh of making him indecisive and that's going to be one of the stories you know when when Brady was just chucking it up a couple it was unblocked rushers and it was you know blitz answers that you've talked about all season that's going to be one of the stories of the Super Bowl because the Chiefs in the first matchup came after Brady and it, and it, their the strategy is just make make them make a quick decision there could be a big play on the other end of it but the margin of error is a little bit tighter because it's the, it's got to happen quicker and quicker I thought the Chiefs did a great job of that uh, the sacks that you mentioned Allen lost four, 53 yards on sacks now the last one was like 18 yards because Allen leads the league in plays in which he tries to stiff arm a 300-pounder and still make a throw. Yeah. This one didn't pay off. But there was one early in the game, too, that just knocked them way back in, uh, in field goal range. I'm kind of amazed that they blew that up and didn't let him play that out. Yeah. Like, kind of the, one, of the, <laughs> one of the points of being Josh Allen is that you can stiff arm a 300-pound guy for, like, five seconds and still find a way of getting rid of the ball. He wasn't, like, it's not like he was stuffed and moving backwards and there was no way out of that he kind of had a shot I think you kind of you have to let him play that out and see how it goes and if he gets hurt on that play you know that's kind of the trade-off for being you know for doing that I think if that if that was your standard of like that's the play you blow up the helmet catch would never have happened like Eli Manning would have been blown dead in the grasp game over well maybe it should have been <laughs> Um, I, I yes, I was surprised they blew that up and let Josh or didn't let Josh Allen try and fight his way out of that. But the point is, that was one, that's one of the reasons that you keep blitzing Josh Allen, even though generally he's been doing a really good job against the blitz, because every now and again he has a tendency to do that to try and do a little bit too much, and when it doesn't work, you get not just a big play, you get a huge play out of it on defense. 
Hey guys, life is full of questions. Like what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, thought, I thought taking the bills out of their rhythm was huge. Um, Allen still ended up having 88 yards on the ground on seven carries. He did, act, you know, he did have a couple big runs that helped keep the Bills in it. Um, but yeah, the the negative plays and just not not being able to get Stephon Diggs into the mix until he had like a late 34 yarder, right? I mean that that was huge too because he all year we talked about hey, you got Cole Beasley, you got Stephon Diggs, you have all these guys, but man, Diggs was the go to guy in, in on third down, inside the pocket, scramble drill, whatever it was. If all else was failing, you could trust Josh Allen. One of two things: he's going to either try to do something, do something with his legs to add value, or find Stephon Diggs. And again, the Chiefs did a really nice job of just taking that away. I mean, is that the story of the game? Like the Chiefs want to feed Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey? No resistance. Twenty-two catches, one seventy-two for Tyreek, one eighteen. But it's it's for the Kelsey. different it's a different approach on defense, right? It's like Buffalo played a little bit soft the way they did so the first matchup buffalo backed everybody else off and invited kansas city to run this matchup they kind of did the same thing except instead of running the ball the chiefs just went with a, a million short passes and let athletes win after the catch um so buffalo essentially played passive to try and force the chiefs to not execute well enough so that they would win they tried you know the way they did against baltimore it's like if we just come up with a couple of key third down stops every now and again this is how we win and by the way one of the biggest things was patrick mahomes coming into this game forget the concussion stuff but with turf toe didn't look unlike patrick mahomes at all it didn't look like it affected him one did iota not look like an issue at all you could see a limp like you could see that he wasn't walking 100 percent and that he was favoring that foot but you wouldn't have known that he was in any way, shape, or form injured from the way he played. And I suspect that that kind of took Buffalo by surprise a little bit because this game plan, not only did it make sense anyway, but it's kind of the one you would run if you think that Mahomes is going to be a little bit more inaccurate than normal because every time he puts his foot in the ground, he's stamping on the turf toe. So that wasn't a factor, and that was probably a big part of this game. But whereas Buffalo is really passive – the Chiefs went to the other end of the spectrum and they went, okay, how do we cover Stephon Diggs? We can't. So we're just not going to let you find him. We're going to come after you with blitzers and you're going to have to get the ball out quicker than that. And there was a bunch of plays where like, the ball just needed to come out faster than Allen could wait, like, could wait for Diggs to uncover. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is a smart thing. Like, we don't have the horses on the back end to cover this array of weaponry. So we're going to make sure you don't have the time to find them anyway. So uh, one big thing that came out of this, Eric Fisher starting left tackle for the Chiefs went goes down with an Achilles injury it was after the game was decided but for the Super Bowl that's going to be important they had to flip Mike Remmers who's Look at already their offensive backup. line now yeah it's it's all it's all backups but I think again I the offensive line just has to not get crushed now that could hurt Remmers at left tackle in the Super Bowl and you know backups across the board but man Mahomes is one of the best Mahomes gets compared to Rodgers all the time right and I think they're the best 
comparisons for each other historically when it when you talk about arm talent and feel for the game and playmaking and all that stuff but the one thing and taking in the interception totals right as much as we talked hey Mahomes has you know gotten away with some stuff this year the last two games have been as clean as it gets no no turnover worthy plays and just taking care of the football so the one difference between Rodgers and Mahomes though is Mahomes doesn't get sacked he is a magician for not just avoiding sacks but knowing the difference between getting rid of the ball when he needs to and then scrambling away from pressure. Rodgers has always had high sack totals pretty much until this year, but you saw it come back again yesterday. But Mahomes had one sack for no yards yesterday, you know, more of a scramble than anything. That those, Avoiding those negative plays, so huge for this Chiefs offense and just an efficient outing for Mahomes, but not having the entire offensive line. The way the Bucks are playing with their defensive line could be a big factor in a couple weeks it's definitely a concern um when you look at what that offensive line is right now on paper it's a huge weakness um that being said it's been that way for a while and all the creative things that we're talking about for this chief's offense and the stuff that we say that you know Mahomes is incredible but he's also helped out with a great scheme and a great bunch of playmakers and all these kinds of things these are all things that help the offensive line as well Yes. Um, so it is a weakness. It is a an area you can target and try and exploit, but it's not easy because they're protecting those guys well, and you know they have Mahomes back there and all these kinds of things. So it's not just this like glaring problem. The way it, so Tom Brady, right? If Tom Brady's offensive line was in ribbons, you're like that could decide the game right here because Brady is a statue. He stands in one spot at the correct drop depth, and if you can make a mess of that, you completely banjacks this play. Mahomes, he can be anywhere. So it doesn't matter that you're going to, you know, if you walk the guard back seven yards into where he's supposed to be, might not matter because he's probably not there anyway. Manipulate the pocket, get out of there. Any other takeaways from this game? We could do like our early Super Bowl preview and then get into some draft discussion, mock draft time. I mean, I'm intrigued by where Buffalo go from here because everybody coming out of this game was like, they'll be back. You know, Buffalo will be back. This team's heading in the right direction. They're doing a great job. This is a fantastic season. Everyone needs to have the one, you know, the loss to, to really get you over the hump. To, to you know, Liverpool in the, the soccer, right? Liverpool lose the Champions League, come back the next season, win. They yeah. lose the title by like a point with one of the best totals ever. They come back the next season, they win the title. You need that defeat. I don't know if the Bills are Liverpool, though. This is what I'm saying. I, I don't. Sure, it might not be a bad thing all the time to experience the loss to get back over the hump and you know get there the next time. I'm not sure it's an automatic prerequisite though. <laughs> like you know, I, I don't think that you need necessarily need that loss. And when you have it, I don't think it's an automatic that you bounce back stronger. A lot of what Buffalo rode this season is potentially a high watermark of what they achieve. Like, does Josh Allen come back next season improved? because of this and play at an all pro level all season long and elevate himself to the level of Mahomes and Rogers in perpetuity, or was this as good as Josh Allen gets and next season you get a little bit worse version? Yeah. I mean, I think unless you're, so there's been one dynasty per decade, essentially Patriots had back-to-back -back ones. Maybe the chiefs are the, the next one. It is really difficult though, to be that team that is essentially there yeah. every single year. It's this, like just like last year at this time, I was like, look, the 49ers had a great season, but they're going to regress, right? I mean, they just, a lot of things had to go right. The Bills are a really good team. I do think they've got a really great foundation in place. 
But the same way we said, look, Lamar Jackson's probably going to regress, at least statistically, at least output-wise last year, and he did both from a play, you know, on-field play plus statistically. Okay, Josh Allen's probably going to regress a little bit. So even though all the pieces are there and they'll still have all the playmakers and the offensive line's fine, it's just – it's tough, right? And it's, then you're going to so have – It's so hard. The, the Jets are going to draft a quarterback next year. They've got a new coach. I mean, everybody around you gets better. Miami's continuing to get better. Uh, the whole AFC is a whole bunch of young – quarterbacks and then the Steelers right so it is uh, the only everything's getting yeah. a little bit better around you as well I think I, again I think you just automatically forget how hard it is to win to this degree on a consistent basis only two teams have ever gone to three straight conference championship games and they've both been Andy Reid coach teams Bill Belichick and the Patriots dynasty never went to three straight AFC championship games. They went to like almost every AFC championship game, but never did it three times in a row. It's so insanely well, hard. Well, they didn't host it three times in a row. Yeah, but it's so insanely hard to get back to that level every single year. And just because Buffalo did it and they've got a quarterback who's moving in the right direction, there's a lot of nice pieces in this team. It's not a given that they're going to be back next year stronger than ever. And next year is the year they can topple Kansas City and make it to the promised land. Like, this might have been their one at bat. Here's, here's what's interesting to me, too. You're always going for the – you're always trying to figure out how to beat the team. It's the Chiefs and the AFC, obviously. How much do you build your team? I mean, look, if you, if you, if you knew that there was a cornerback available who could at least slow down Tyreek Hill, or you knew that there was, an, you know, like a J.J. Watt athletic specimen who specialized in covering tight ends like a Travis Kelsey, if you knew that guy existed, you'd draft him anyway. But how much does a team like the Bills, knowing the AFC is going through the Chiefs, how much do they try to build their team around, hey, we got to slow the Chiefs? The same way the Raiders are like, man, we're going to try to match the Chiefs with Henry Ruggs, you know, with, with our speed. Or the Chargers bring in Brandon Staley to be the guy to slow down the Chiefs. How much do you think about Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid all offseason? Yeah, I mean, remember when Randy Moss burst onto the scene in 98 and the next year the Green Bay Packers drafted like three cornerbacks. Okay, what do you but, what do you even draft to take away Tyreek Hill? I don't that's, know. That's kind of my issue is that I don't – when you were saying before, who, like who is the corner with the skill set to try and neutralize what he does? There isn't one. There's nobody that moves like him in the NFL. Nobody. There's guys that are maybe as fast as him, though, frankly, probably not. There's nobody as quick as he is. There's, there's just nobody with that combination of speed and quickness and – like that springy ability to like elevate win catches and win jump balls, those kinds of things. There, what do you draft to try and stop that? Three corners, or and you allot them all to him, or like a pass rusher. Because again, like we're not going to stop that, so let's try and get after the quarterback more. But there's, you know, the pass rusher is not going to do anything either. Yeah, I mean, look, the Bills. I like their foundation and everything, but I think your point is to assume that the Bills are going to be. Oh, we'll be in the AFC Championship again next year. Is is a big assumption. All right, let's go to – do you want to talk Super Bowl a little bit? No, that's next show. Well, not, not even next show. two shows from right. now. We'll get there. Don't worry. Don't, you know. No early patience. preview? No early thoughts? I mean, it's a nice matchup. Oh, yeah. really nice matchup. We've a lot already, of red for the second year in true. a row. There's, ugh, uniform combinations could be tricky. Are the Buck? do the Bucks? I think they get their – I think the, it's the NFC's year to wear the home jersey. I think it would be weird if the Bucks wore their road jersey in their home stadium. It would. Maybe they go with that all pewter thing that they have. I like how teams go back and they're like, when we used to, when we wore this uni uniform, things were bad. I think all pewter was when they got destroyed by the Saints, wasn't it? Oh, this year? Yeah, this year. Yeah. 
I don't know. That's I, off. I wasn't paying attention to what uniform they were wearing when they, they lost. Chiefs wore red last year, Okay, I believe, right? I assume they'll be in white. They'll be in their all-white. The first all-white Super Bowl Chiefs uniform for, the, uh, for Mahomes. Hmm. How about that? Yeah, good uniform talk. All right, we'll have our Super Bowl preview in a couple weeks. I think it's an incredible matchup. It's going to be great. Let's get to my mock draft, Sam. All right. It's draft time. Um, this mock draft, I usually do my mock draft saying, here's what I would do. I think I did, a, I did mostly that. I also did some, you know, some thought exercises. And, uh, thought exercises? I mean, it's just like there was so many different. like a think piece mock? No, I mean, there was a couple picks I, I don't know if I would definitely make if I was the general manager, but I was like, all right, this is fine. The first question is, did you do any insane trades? I did not allow myself to do trades, which hamstrings you in general. Like the Dolphins picked at three, you know, would, is Deshaun Watson going to be in the mix? And is that actually going to go back to the Texans? I thought that the Colts pick at 23, again, we'll talk about it on the daily. I think the Colts, they flip a first rounder for Matthew Stafford and, and everybody's happy. The, there's potentially at least... the Colts in this market. Right. There's potentially at least three pretty high-end starters available in the NFL through trade. The Colts absolutely are coming away with one of them, right? There's no way they don't roll into 2021 season with a viable starting quarterback that they have traded for, right? No, I think, uh, I think you're right. But in this particular mock, I drafted Mac Jones for them okay. at quarterback, even know, knowing that they might not even have that pick. So it's yeah. kind of like, ah, you know, if they don't have a quarterback in free agency, let's look to the future. Mac Jones could be a good guy for this for this franchise okay so do you have any um so at the top i go trevor lawrence you did yeah and then i think the the biggest decision here is going to be qb2 for the jets is it zach wilson from byu is it justin fields from ohio state and you went wilson i went zach wilson i'm agreeing with mike renner but i'm agreeing with what what i saw on tape too i like wilson as qb2 in this class i feels for me is like the trickiest evaluation of the top quarterbacks at the moment i'm there's a lot of questions i have watching his game generally um i huge a huge amount of what they do in that offense he's very rarely stressed like the entire offense is really simple it's drop back wait for your primary read to uncover and then just hit him with the ball and he's really good at that but that's generally not quarterbacking at the nfl level like all this stuff we talk about you have to do an awful lot more than that. And that's like, that's 101. And for, to be in the NFL, you need 201 and whatever. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and then the other thing is, um, but working against that, we've also seen some bad play from him as well, which, you know, is part of it. Um, but working against that is, he does make a lot of this stuff look absurdly easy. And I used to think that that was a bad thing for a prospect that, if you make it look easy at the college level, you're probably not going to have that luxury at the NFL level where everybody's better and a better athlete and bigger, stronger, faster, and that's when you get exposed. But I think over the last 10 years or so, I've started to flip that and think that, you know what, if you make it look that easy at the college level, ultimately that kind of translates and you tend to have the same physical gifts at the NFL level and have a similar ability to just make it look easy. And you know, Tyree Hill is a good example of that, a guy that's just a freak athlete and you're a freak athlete in college and in the NFL and he makes it look easy and Cam Newton was another example of that a guy who you know you look at what he was doing in college and like well there's no way that translates but it turns out if you're larger than the defensive end trying to chase you down and faster than him it doesn't matter like you still get that working at the NFL level so 
I think there's something to this idea that Fields just looks a superior athlete to most of the people he's dealing with, and that will probably be true at the NFL level as well, at which point a lot of his failings might not matter. Yeah, he is a tough evaluation because, as you said, there's a lot of open stuff in the Ohio State offense, but then there's other plays where he just looks – he's just slow to see the field. The same thing we just described about Allen and his game against the Chiefs. Um, But then Fields goes up against Clemson in that game and absolutely tears it up. He didn't have any of that. And I think the processing speed stuff – so when I watched Fields, I got Carson Wentz in college type of vibes. And I know coming off the year that Wentz just had – People are going to get scared to death. But let's not forget Carson Wentz has been an above-average quarterback for the majority of his career. And I think Fields had some of those vibes because Wentz played really slow at times, but he'd make up for it with the arm talent, had some rushing ability. Fields has all of that. Um, But I put him at four to the Falcons, which I do think if you're slotting Fields anywhere, putting him with Arthur Smith and putting him behind Matt Ryan for a year, not the worst thing in the world for Fields to sit, develop, and – and a good plan for the Falcons, I think, to just roll with Matt Ryan for one more year and then transition to a Justin Fields. So that's where I went with Fields at number four to the Falcons. Fields' postseason was phenomenal. I mean, not just the – so the Clemson game obviously was incredible. That was a, you know, Michael Jordan flu game kind of legacy-building thing. But also, I don't think he came out of the national championship looking badly either. I think, if anything, that helped his legacy. Ohio State was just massively overmatched by Alabama. But right. Fields, I think, played, you know, pretty well. If you're coming out of this season – the two toughest games, effectively, the best competition that he faced. You know, he didn't win both the games, but I think he would have come out of both those games with an enhanced draft status. So then the going Wilson at number two, I remember when, when Renner first made the move on the board, I was like, man, I, I really like Zach Wilson. And I hadn't really dove into the, to the throw-by-throw yet, but I was like, I don't see, I don't know if I could put him over fields. When I watched Wilson, though, I, I agreed with him as QB2 in this group, I, I just think he has some of that playmaking feel that Fields has it too. And Lawrence, you know, but Wilson has the feel that all the all the new quarterbacks that are coming into the league have. He And he also has that, you know, just flick of the wrist, velocity and touch. And I, I just, I like the arm talent combination with Wilson. I like the accuracy. And I like just the feel that he has for making plays. So I really think from Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence, I know we're talking about him as the best prospect in years. I don't know how people look back on Andrew Luck's career because he didn't really win anything, but I think Lawrence ends up as an Andrew Luck or better type of prospect, which is outstanding. It's still outstanding. Trevor Lawrence is going to, I think he's going to succeed. I think Justin Fields is going to succeed. I think Wilson is too. I really think we're talking about three quarterbacks, put them in the right situation. They're going to be fine. You are always, uh, you know, a little bit optimistic at these things. I'm not. I'm not. Yes, you are. I don't like Trey Lance that much. You are always on the optimistic side of the spectrum of quarterbacks. Always. I disagree. Huh. Okay. I well, I look for the I look for their path to success. Yes. So if they you get there, I can always point back. Optimism. No, I I just I'm I lay out what their path to success is and what their skill set is. Yes. What you're doing is defining the way that you're optimistic with these quarterbacks. That's that's the way you are. There's no point fighting against that. All right, I've got more reservations about Trey Lance, and I put him, Sam, uh-huh. number seven to the Detroit Lions. This is what I'm saying. Like I had, I did not. Ha- I initially had the Lions taking my favorite pick, Micah Parsons. Yes, right? the actual <laughs> knee biting, ankle biting, hard nosed linebacker. Micah Parsons to the Lions feels like the perfect fit. On 
on it was a PFF daily, right? On the daily, we talked about the coaching hires and, you know, Dan Campbell, there's a, a lot of talk about all the coaching hires and a lot of them have trended towards this sort of young, exciting, X's and O's, vibrant coach, you know, who's the next good thing, Brandon Staley, whatever, incredible defense first year. And then there's the Dan Campbell hiring, right? And it's like the dude's introductory press conference starts talking about chewing people's kneecaps off on the way up. And it was just like this tale of grit and old school football mentality. Now, to be fair, it was like edited because there was some smart stuff in there as well about, you know, things that don't make him look ridiculous. He also said he was speaking to the people of Detroit yes. trying to make a point. So like, you've been knocked down. We're going to come there back. There was some smart stuff in there that wasn't necessarily edited in and all these kinds of things. But one of the things we said in the daily is that, look, this is he he's being portrayed as this like meathead, old school grit coach, you know, which is just the opposite direction that everybody else is trending in. And this is why Detroit is Detroit. On the other hand, the guy has been like learning at the feet of Sean Payton for a number of years now, who is one of the smartest offensive minded coaches in the NFL. Maybe Dan Campbell like actually has an awful lot more to him than we are giving him credit for from the outside looking in. Um, on the other hand, there are some things there in terms of hirings, in terms of how this thing is assembling around him that make you think that, you know what, the one thing that Dan Campbell wants from this draft is like the toughest player he can find. Let me connect those dots then for you. Lions at seven. I gave them Trey Lance. The PFF draft guide is out yes. right now, Sam. And if you guys have your draft guide and you open to page 21 out of 477, that's right. There's 477 pages in the draft guide, which is the best draft guide we've ever put out. It does get better every single year. Page 21 is the Trey Lance page. Okay. And Mike Renner's NFL player comparison, Taysom Hill. With, with arm talent. There you go. That's toughness. With arm talent. And I could see, That's you know, I, I had to I, I had to rip up my mock because, you know, I, I like the hard copy. Mm. I had to rip it up okay. and redo it because on Saturday night, the Lions said they're moving on from Matthew Stafford. Yeah. So I initially had Trey Lance going at number 12 to the San Francisco 49ers. Now I moved him up to number seven to the Lions. I took Micah Parsons out. And then I see Renner's comp today. With the draft guide, I'm like, all right, some of this is making sense here. The Lions, the Lions have a six-year contract for Dan Campbell, and he just learned under Sean Payton, as you said. I think he's going to want to run the ball. I think he has time to develop a quarterback. Yes. And Trey Lance can add value as a runner. He does have that arm talent, and he does get. I think he might be a two or three-year project, and I think it matches up what really, really well with the Lions now. I think that's kind of harsh on Taysom Hill. I think his arm's fine. He's got arm talent. Well, you'll have to take that up with the Renner. Okay. I'll put, so. a, note, I'll put a note there. Um, I want to talk about the first wide receiver off the board because you went Jamar Chase over Devontae Smith. I did. I don't like that. Why not? I but wait, wait. Devontae first, I want to tell everybody where they can get this draft guide. Okay. Do because it. we've got deals here. Super Bowl 25. Super Bowl 25. You get 25% off any subscription, whether it's Edge or Elite. So... Elite is what you get. That's the big package. You definitely want Elite, but you can get the draft guide with Edge. Super Bowl 25, you get 25% off. And the draft guide has over 150 player profiles. As I mentioned, 477 pages in this promo code. is only active through the Monday after the Super Bowl. That's two weeks from today. So act now. Super Bowl 25, 25% off. Go get your draft guide hot off the presses. Now tell me why I'm wrong with Jamar Chase as the top wide receiver off the board. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that I like Devontae Smith a lot 
and would take him first. <laughs> I'm not I'm not declaring you wrong, Steve. I'm oh, okay. just raising the possibility that you've ballsed it up. Ballsed it up. Banjaxed it even. Yeah. Banjaxed my wide receiver. Well, I think people are going to be upset about either Jamar, Jamar Chase going off the board first. I'll explain why him in a second. Jalen Waddell I gave to the Giants at 11 ahead of Devontae Smith as well. See the fellow Alabama receiver. This is this is how this is a repeat of last year, right? Last year, uh, Jerry Judy, the demonstrably superior player, was taken behind Henry Ruggs, who was fast, right? Speed, baby. This year, we're going to do the same thing again. Devontae Smith, who has been the best player of that team for the last two years, is going to get taken behind Jalen Waddell, who is fast. Now, to be fair, I think Jalen Waddell is better than Henry Ruggs, but I also think Devontae Smith is better than Jerry Judy. So, Whoa, you think Devontae Smith is better than Jerry Judy? I do. I do. Yeah. All right, we got we got a one-off here. So we're making Send the same it to social media. Sam's going to talk about Dev you love Jerry Judy. We've I got do. memes about how much you love Jerry Judy. You like Devonte more? Yes, this is why I'm saying he should be the first receiver off the board. Oh, I got to I got to rethink now because this you're a pretty is, good evaluator of receivers. This is we are making the same mistake again, and by we I mean you. In addition to other people that will be making the same mistake later as well, just by the way it's they too, operate. Too small, can't uh, can't handle press. Yeah. too slow so like okay whatever about the jamar chase going number one i can see an argument for that right he had a phenomenal season as well but you can't how can you put him behind waddle stop it stop I, that I now went, i over i overthought fit when it came to the receivers <laughs> or i thought about fit and honestly it's the same mistake the eagles just admitted that they made not mistake but the the reasoning where they went with jalen rager over justin jefferson in the draft is they thought that Jalen Rager's fit was better for the for the offense and look, look I don't know that they're necessarily wrong they also got blinded by speed they wanted to add speed I wanted Jamar Chase at number five to pair him with Joe Burrow because I've seen those guys work together and I said listen Bengals fans just because you didn't get Panay Sewell in this mock draft you're going to get a guy who's going to get open Jamar Chase reminds me of a bigger Antonio Brown with his ability to win at the catch point and just, you know, it doesn't look like a dynamic athlete, but just knows how to get open. That's Jamar Chase. I like that. I'm fine with that. J J Jalen Waddell, I like the deep speed. And I think Daniel Jones, one of the most efficient deep ball throwers in the league this year, can add, you know, can use another downfield threat like Jalen Waddell. So I'm going for the, for the home run there. A guy that yeah, I think I mean has 16, 17 yards per reception type of potential at the next level i don't think it's a bad fit or pick at all unless Devonte smith happens to be on the board at the time in which case it's crazy like this is henry rose is not a bad first round pick in isolation it's just picking him over jerry judy is a mistake all right so Devonte smith i ended up having him go 15 to the new england patriots yeah it's probably a little bit low for Devonte. we'll see what happens in the next mock how high would you take Devonte smith where do you like his fit Bengals at five or in the mix would you take him at three if you're the Miami Dolphins and reunite him with two if you're the Dolphins I chose Panay Sewell at number three because they can't trade out in my scenario I'd rather see them trade but they get Sewell at left tackle we flip Austin Jackson to the right side continue to build that offensive line would you go Devontae Smith as high as three to the Dolphins so I think quarterbacks go number one and number two I think that's pretty much set in stone um number three is the first pick where there will be a question mark of who comes next and i think most people would put panay sewell there i don't hate that um but you know we've talked before about the value of wide receivers versus other positions in 
um, football and moving the needle in terms of winning games, I think you can definitely construct an argument that a number one legitimate wideout is a more valuable boost to the Miami Dolphins than a tackle. The que- that, that then becomes the question of what is your degree of certainty with these things, right? This is why uh, Quentin Nelson was propelled so high up draft boards because the value, yeah. the value of the certainty you have that he will be a superstar is worth um, propelling him further up than a guard should normally be drafted. Panay Sewell will be the same thing, but a tackle. Everybody is going to be absolutely certain that this guy is a nailed-on Pro Bowl left tackle. And that has value over wide receivers who are still more of a crapshoot because as much as you're confident in them, any given wide receiver can have a Jalen Rager rookie season and look like a miss right off the bat. I think it's a lot like the debate we had last year with Chase Young yeah. against whoever the, you know, Jeffrey Okuda, whoever the other top corners are. There's certainty, I think, in predicting the performance of the trench players. There's uncertainty in, in predicting receivers and corners. There's also scarcity. There is not, there's, it's, there's unlikely to be a Penesul caliber tackle in the draft in the second round. Correct. There is a chance, that as great as Devontae Smith is or as great as Jamar Chase is, that there is a receiver who can produce just as well as him late first or into the second round. Just look at the last couple drafts. Yeah. A.J. Brown, second round. Justin Jefferson, not the top wide receiver off the board. Um, yeah, that happens at other positions as well, but it happens a lot at receiver and corner. So um, I think you're going to hear a lot from PFF in general over the next few months, and you're going to see mocks, and you know the forecast is going to do it, and maybe you know Renner and Austin are going to do it on two-for-one drafts. A lot of receivers going off the board early and high and receivers and corners and all that stuff, but there is an argument to be made for the certainty. Yep and the scarcity of those positions instead of just going after chasing war, so to speak. Right, and for that, like if you're going to say Panay Sewell is the number three pick to Miami, assuming they keep that pick, um, I'm not going to – I wouldn't fight too hard. If you you made that pick a wide receiver instead, I wouldn't – again, I wouldn't hate that either. I think they're – Whoever is at number three has a pretty good luxury of being able to do that, to choose between a potentially generational talent tackle and the best wide receiver off the board, whoever you think it is. It's one of those great spots in the draft where you can't really go wrong. Like, obviously, you can if you get a guy and he busts. But yeah. my point is, in theory, that's a great spot to be in because I think you have a couple of ways you could go, each of which would be good on paper. So I think you're in the right spot in terms of where the first wide receiver comes off the board, number five to the Bengals. I just think you've picked the wrong guy. And the Bengals, as much as I say it's tough to get that tackle in the second round, I think the Bengals can get creative in how they build their offensive line without necessarily getting a Panay Sewell where they're at number five. So um, I struggled with the Eagles at six. I didn't know which way to go there. I went cornerback uh, Caleb Farley out of Virginia Tech, pair him with Darius Slay. Farley's our number one corner, incredible athleticism and quote-unquote upside. you got to put quotes on that one. But, man, he's got all the tools. Uh, Farley at six, Patrick Sertan, a little different type of player, just really good, technically sound. There's a lot of uh, sons, sons, a lot of sons in this. Uh, Patrick Sertan's son, of course, Uh, Asante Samuel's son, a lot of sons in this. Uh, uh, JC Horn, that was uh, Joe Horns, Joe Horns kid, right? All the all the top, a lot of the top corners. Um, But I put Patrick Sertan at ten to the Cowboys. I think that's going to be a common match as well Sertan playing in the Dan Quinn scheme I think is is a really nice matchup there talk to me about Kyle Pitts you have him at number eight to the oh, Carolina Panthers I was going to mention he was one of my favorite picks of the draft yeah I look at the Panthers they spent every pick on defense last year 
and they still, you know, my theory of just flood the field with playmakers. Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore, they're going to lose Curtis Samuel likely to free agency. But if you have Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore and you add Kyle Pitts to the mix, boom, I love that trio. Defensive coordinators got to figure out how to stop that three, those three guys. Not just that, but I love bringing a Kyle Pitts and pairing him with Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator oh, yeah. in Carolina. They'll like, use him, man. That's what I'm saying. Kyle Pitts, I think, has the potential to be one of the best playmakers in the entire draft. I do think that you you would certainly want to see him land somewhere where a, an offensive coordinator is creative and understands how to use positionless players effectively, right? Oof, yeah. Instead of just saying, here is a tight end who isn't going to be great at blocking. Like if you went to Bruce Arian's scheme, Bruce would be like, he's a tight end. His job's to block. Right. <laughs> that I would not love if you just say – Here's your new tight end. He's not great at blocking. Have fun. And you try and take advantage of him as much as possible as a receiving option from your inline tight end uh, place. That, I mean, it would work. He would be okay at it. I just don't love it, right? But if you pair him with a guy who actually understands how to make use of athletes in space and not pigeonhole them into a specific position and skill set and set of responsibilities, like Kyle Pitts could be freaking amazing. Yeah, he's one of my best fits in this entire draft. Pitts to the to the Panthers at eight. I'll let you look through and see if there's anything that looks crazy to you, but a couple other picks I wanted to highlight. 17 and 18 were two of my favorites. Las Vegas Raiders at 17. Gave him Christian Barmore, the interior defensive lineman from Alabama. I think he's the best interior rusher that's come out in a few years now. And He was a beast in the national championship game. Yeah, I mean, he 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 reminded me a little bit, reminds me a little bit of Gerald McCoy with his just his get-off, but also strength. It's not just athleticism. It's also the way he uh, engages blocks and is able to push the pocket a little bit and just strong hands. I think that's a good fit for the Raiders. And then uh, JOK, Awusa Koromara, the, well uh, the linebacker slash safety out of Notre Dame. You talk about positionless football. This guy plays overhang linebacker safety for Notre Dame, sending him to Brian Flores and the Dolphins given where their weaknesses are and how they've restructured their pass defense, I think is a great fit. He's one of those guys, like in Isaiah Simmons, a team has to have a plan. How am I going to use this guy? And JOK, I think, is a great fit for the Dolphins. I like it. Um, the only other quarterback you have going off is Mac Jones at 21 to Indianapolis, who, as we've mentioned, probably won't um, be using that pick, assuming they've traded it for a, a veteran quarterback. But... Is Mac Jones the only other quarterback that you think can go in the first round from this group? I think Kyle Trask could from Florida. I mean, he did some really nice things at Florida. I, I think, I think Mac Kyle Trask is a little limited. You're a Florida guy. I am. I don't have my Florida. I know it's, it's gone. gone. I threw away my Florida <laughs> water bottle. I enjoyed watching Kyle Trask play. It was nice watching Florida have competent quarterback play for the first time since Tebow. But um, with competent quarterback play and Tebow in the same sentence. Wow. In college. Yeah, I know. This is why, you know, college yeah. is college. Yes. Um, I, Trask, I don't think, you know, has the velocity, arm talents. The, the, the thing that works in his favor is the fact that he was – he's played so little football. But I, and I, but I don't know what the NFL is going to look at Trask, especially the way his, uh, his season ended against Oklahoma. You kind of saw some of the velocity issues and everything. I think Trask is more of a, eh, a second rounder. We'll see what happens. And – you know, go from there. We'll see what the, you know. The senior, he's at the Senior Bowl, and that will be big for him. Um, and then, you know, Mac Jones, for a guy that was so productive, 
is he too low? Should he be considered a top 10 pick? I think there's a legitimate debate, but I keep coming back to this. All the re- I don't know how much recency bias I'm going to be swayed by, but all the recent success stories, guys that have a little bit better yeah. velocity that, and playmaking that Mac Jones just doesn't really have. That is going to be one of the stories of this entire draft right now is you're right. Every one of these recent success stories a quarterback has been a toolsy type of player, and the pro- the ones that would normally be labeled as project quarterbacks to an extent have almost all paid off. And not just paid off, but they paid off huge. Like Deshaun Watson had some legitimate concerns about his play as a genuine uh, – uh, his ability to sort of read, process, work beyond the first read – actually evaluate a defense and figure out where to go with the ball and a it hasn't mattered when he had those problems earlier in his career b he's taken massive strides in that area and none more so than this year where he became like a complete um processor from a quarterback position and is now as good as any quarterback in the nfl patrick mahomes was just like this big bag of chaos as a texas tech <laughs> and is now the greatest quarterback the game has ever seen Josh Allen was the Ikea quarterback, just this box of tools that if you could figure out how to put it all together, you would get your nice TV stand or whatever it is. He is now a perfect TV stand housing your nice fancy plasma in the corner of your, your room. All of these guys have TV come good. TV stand that's going to lose 18 yards a pop every now and again. <laughs> Almost all of these guys have come good. Daniel Jones, I guess, is a little bit of a question mark right now, but it's probably already exceeded a lot of people's expectations. He's not as toolsy as the other guys, though. Okay, fair enough. Whatever. My point is that almost all of these guys have panned out in recent times. So does that change how you evaluate quarterbacks? Do you now need to say that in order to work at the NFL level and be really good, you can't just be a statuesque Tom Brady style of quarterback. You need to be able to create outside of structure and move to the flat and and outrun you know, a 300-pound guy chasing you down. You can't have this Christian Ponder syndrome of – not understanding that you can no longer outrun a 330-pound man, you need to actually be able to outrun that guy and make some plays in the flat every now and again. So I think they're all fair points. I think Tom Brady's going to the Super Bowl. Can you be a Tom Brady? Sure. Can you be a Drew Brees? Can you be a Peyton Manning? Sure. But you have to be that good. You have to be as good as they are at processing and and accuracy at all levels and all of that stuff. So you're saying, okay, for Mac Jones to succeed, you know – is there this floor where he could just you know, run an offense and hit open throws like he did at Alabama? Sure. But does the, is the ceiling limited? And should you be chasing the ceiling? We talk here all the time, the value of a top 8 to 10 quarterback. Can Mac Jones ever be there? Whereas Trey Lance might take a while but could get there. So I think, I think these are legitimate and when we And when we talk about the draft is all about playing percentages, right? As a default position, you should probably assume that the person you're looking at is not Tom Brady. Yes, oh, yeah, right. uh, you know, as a statuesque pocket passer, you can still succeed and be really good at the NFL level, but you have to be basically the greatest quarterback to ever play. As a default starting position, you should assume that a first-round prospect is not the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. Then proceed from there. I think that's a fair starter. All right, let's wrap it up I, with uh, two more picks that I really liked. A couple wide receivers in the 20s. Jacksonville Jaguars. So they already drafted Trevor Lawrence. They get Kadarius Toney from Florida. Mm-hmm. And then the Ravens yes. gave them Rondell Moore yes. from Purdue. I think So Kadarius Toney at Florida, you've got Urban Meyer there. And Urban's going to look and say, there's my Percy Harvin, right? And you've got Toney. 
You've got DJ Chark, who's a legitimate deep threat, and then LaVisca Chenault. So now you've got – LaVisca can be a true actual receiver, but he's got some gimmick player in him, right? Yep. Tony ha- was a gimmick player at Florida, and then this year became a good all-around slot. So you have weapons to play around with if you're Urban Meyer. I like the Kadarius Tony fit to the Jags, and I like Rondell Moore going to the Ravens. And Rondell Moore is the one I want to talk about because it's my favorite uh, player comp that I've had in years because I stole it from somebody. Um, I can't remember who gave it to me. I'm, I'm sorry if he's a listener. Great. It's one of the best player comps that ever, anybody has ever come up with. You know why? Why? Because it's a rugby player. Oh, here we go. Rondell Moore is Bingo. Jerry is Jerry Tawai. Oh, right? of course he is. Who was a Fiji rugby, a sevens player. Not even the full 15-man game. Everybody knows that. A sevens player. And if you – literally, there's highlights on YouTube. Google Jerry Tawai, T-U-W-A-I, I think. Um, it's Rondale Moore. And one of the reasons why is he has this thing that special athletes have and so few of them where every now and again they understand that in order to go forward you should take a quick step backwards. That's full work in the game according to this YouTube video. There you go. See? His highlight reel is full of this stuff, right? And Rondale Moore has it as well where in order to generate this bit of space, Barry Sanders did this a lot as well, uh, Dante Hall, in order to generate a little bit of space in front of you, if you take a half step backwards, everybody moves out of your way. Like they just adjust to the wrong place and then you jump into the gap that they've all just vacated. Rondell Moore does that throughout his career at Purdue. It's just, ins- and I don't think you can teach that. I think it's just an instinctive thing that these guys understand that if you just take a little half step back, bam, explode into the space, gone, 50 yard touchdown. Yeah, to why it looks, Dante Hall's a pretty good, different body type but a good proxy here yeah you like Rondell as a first rounder I do so I like him going to the Ravens because you know again not that not that the Ravens are only going to draft somebody that can you know handle an end around and all that stuff but I think Rondell can be a true wide receiver but also be a part of their run game right and he makes a lot of sense. the field with yeah. those types he makes a lot of sense within that offense there's part of me that thinks that look I I don't know how much Rondell Moore might be a better fit for Baltimore's offense than what I'm suggesting, but I part of me wants to see a sort of prototypical number one X receiver in that system just to see what does it do? Like, does that guy get lost? And if he isn't just a gadget player, you're not, you know, the offense isn't capable of maximizing the threat of a guy like that. Like if Stephon Diggs was... Or Julio yeah. Jones, right? If you plugged Julio Jones into that offense, what does it look like? I, I think it depends on... It would look like Julio at Alabama. A lot of run blocking, hmm. but like, but there would be games. It, it's just like we joke about, hey, you know, there's a couple games where Derrick Henry's well worth it. You know, he's going to run for yeah. 200. There'll be some games where the Ravens need a right. Julio so, Jones type. Like on a on a, let's assume Rondell Moore becomes the NFL player that you know his college suggests that he will be. Does that is that a better fit for that offense overall, or does the Julio Jones addition to that system unlock a level of passing proficiency that isn't there right now? Yeah, I think the Ravens, I think this offseason is going to be about them making a move at the receiver position. Maybe it's Rondell Moore in the draft. Uh, by the way, the Pittsburgh Steelers, I have to change their pick. I gave them Asante Samuel. I think he's a good zone corner, good fit for them. Marquise Pouncey mm-hmm. announced, or is going to announce, being reported, that he's going to retire. So, so the who's, Steelers. Who's the Hall of Fame center in this draft? Creed Humphrey, probably. Okay. I don't know. Maybe Creed Humphrey. But well, the, the, great, the great thing is it doesn't matter because the Steelers are gonna, yeah. as soon as the Steelers draft him, he will be a future Hall of Fame center. The Steelers have had like four centers in the last 70 years. They're going to draft <laughs> another center. 
and he's going to be a pro bowler for the next 10 years. They're going to draft him at number 24 overall. The okay. two other real quick picks, Green Bay Packers, I gave Tyson Campbell, big long corner out of Georgia to replace Kevin King <laughs> um, before <laughs> the Kevin King. This I did this before yesterday. <laughs> what would make you think that Kevin King needs replacing? Well, he's heading free agency. Oh, so okay. Yesterday yeah, happened. Of course. Campbell could be a nice little fit. And I, I mentioned during the Chiefs game, Elijah Molden, one of my favorite players in the draft, he, he might be more of a second-round type of player, but corner, safety, hybrid, best slot corner grade that we've given since Mike Hilton. He's, he's, to me, he's somewhere between Mike Hilton and Tyron Matthew as a okay. player skill set. And I think if you get a player like that, that's a, is he going to be one of the most top 30 most valuable players in this draft? Absolutely, if that's what you get. I mean, so when, going yeah. to Kansas City to potentially replace Matthew in the future. It's ironic when you think about um, – player position value and what you should and shouldn't take in the first round like that caliber of player is seen as a fairly uh, people don't draft those guys in the first round they absolutely should be conversely why would you take a running back in the first round and yet that's where they went last year this would be a significantly smarter pick in terms of value and um, chance of paying you back than drafting Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in the first round was and as I as expected. No running backs in the first round for me. Travis Etienne's the top running back on our draft board, but I didn't put him up there. But I did have Elijah Molden because I love him. Mm -hmm. So that's it. That's my mock. Go check it out. PFF.com. We'll have Wor a lot more draft coverage. Worst mock ever. Officially. Thank you. Oh, it, it will be. Mm -hmm. Look, there's some picks you don't that I don't love, but there's, there's some I do, even okay. though I, I made all of them. So go check it out. PFF.com. Let me know. And don't forget, uh, Super Bowl 2-5. Super Bowl 25. 25% off any pff product now is the time my friends go get that draft guide 477 pages of goodness there'll be even more updates further along so you might as well just get it right now while we have this deal 25 percent off any pff subscription so rest of uh, i think thursday we're going to try to get brad on here sam mm -hmm. to discuss free agent contracts and fits who is brad steve brad spielberger he is the new pf formerly of over the cap fresh out of law school Wow. and Tulane Law. So he's smart. Yeah, he's he's smart. And he's going to be here. He's been, he's been added to our uh, the PFF team. He's done a ton of great content over at pff.com, but he's going to come on here and he's he's done contract projections. He kind of gets these, you know, uses some PFF numbers to get into a ballpark of where guys are going to get paid. We're going to talk some fits and some uh, you know, just what guys are going to get paid in the uh, in the free agent market. So we'll get him on here Thursday to discuss some of that stuff. So the next couple of weeks, we got a lot of free agency stuff, do some more draft coverage. It's senior bowl week, which is great. So you got some senior bowl practices to check out NFL network. This is, this is your time, Sam. I was so excited that Devonte Smith was going to go to the senior bowl. I was like, wow, we are going to see this guy destroy everybody for a week of one-on-ones, you know, post the best PFF grade we've ever seen. And I was like, how is he going to the, like, he just wrecked his finger or thumb in the, in the national title game. How is he going to the senior bowl? course he's only going to like do the interviews and stuff he's not working out or anything so yeah but briefly i was really excited about Devonte smith at the senior bowl and then realized that he's not actually doing anything there real quick Devonte smith is he better than calvin ridley because you liked judy yeah. better than ridley yes i mean by definition therefore i'm just trying to remember and reiterate so you like Devonte smith De then judy, judy to then me ridley. was calvin ridley at 120 percent speed um and Devonte smith is better than jerry judy he's a more complete player therefore he is the best of the three Coming wow. out. I mean, obviously, Ridley is elevated so far in the NFL. I can't wait for more of your draft takes. It's uh, draft take season, Sam. Can't wait to, see, to hear more of them. So, all right, we'll, got, we'll see you guys on Thursday. We'll have a lot more off-season discussions of free agency and all-around NFL talk. Go, go check out the PFF Daily as well. Thanks, everybody.
you Thursday.